Well, as I said, welcome to Water's Edge Sunday. I'm excited to be sharing with you this morning about more things that are close to my heart. Uh, we're gonna be diving into some scriptures, and while I provide a bit of a recap over the last couple Water's Edge Sundays, if you're gonna want a Bible, a copy of the scriptures, just raise your hand to let someone know that you want a copy of the scriptures, and they will be glad to put a copy in your hands. So the last couple of Waters Edge Sundays, we've talked about many things. One thing in particular is the global giants. These are the global giants. These are the, the things that threaten the very lives of people. And so as I communicated the global giants of spiritual emptiness and self-serving leadership, disease, multifaceted illiteracy, and poverty, things that, that wanna separate people from God, I shared what we believe are the antidotes, what we believe are, for lack of a better term, the weapon that God is equipping us to use in order to slay these giants home and away. They are to accelerate reproducing churches, mobilize servant leaders, provide healing for the sick, educate the next generation, and defend the poor. I've talked about poverty quite a bit, I've talked about how the root of poverty is spiritual, it's a result of sin. And the nature of poverty is about relationships that don't work. Poverty distorts, poverty confuses people's identity and true vocation to be image bearers and co-creators with God. And so we believe that this strategy is one way that we can repair those relationships. We can repair people's relationships with God, with themselves, and with the other, amen? And so as we've been applying this strategy away through our international campuses, we've been wrestling with the idea. We've got three some thousand people. How do we apply this strategy at home? Because all missions is local. Good, you're getting it. All missions is local. And so the missions team and the missions council, we've been asking the question, how do we apply this? We don't want to reinvent the wheel. God, how, how are you already at work locally through our community? And so I have a friend of mine who can be quite persistent. He would keep asking me and keep asking me and keep asking me, what do we stand for? What do we stand for? What do we stand for? And so I brought that question to the Lord. God, I've been at Central for a while and what? What do we stand for? He said, you're asking the wrong question. I said, well, I do that a lot. The question is not, what do we stand for? The question needs to be, who are we standing with? You see, there's a big difference between standing for something and standing with someone. Standing for something can be easy. Two clicks on an Instagram photo and you're like, I'm for it. You know, a Facebook rant on, you know, I'm, I'm for it. That's the easy part. What takes courage and bravery is to stand with a person who is suffering, who is hurting, to see their futures become one that is filled with the hope and life of Jesus Christ. It's kinda like prayer, too. You know, as a pastor, people will often come to me and say, uh, Pastor Micah, will you pray for me? And sometimes, I hate to admit it, I take the easy route, oh sure, I'll pray for you, see you, right? I'll pray for you, but to stay there and to say, yeah, I wanna pray with you, it makes all the difference in the world. But there are often people who are like us, often people who we naturally have an affinity to that we love, that makes it easier to pray with them, to stand with them. How many of you know Holly LeBlanc? She's near and dear. I thought I saw about 1,200 heads go. She's near and dear to our, our heart. She was recently diagnosed with cancer like she needed another thing. We love her. But if 1,000 people 
want to pray with her, that's a little bit overwhelming. So in this scenario, pray for her. But the reality is, is that there's thousands and thousands of people in our community who have no one to stand with them, no one to pray for them. And so the call this morning is for all of us to stand for and to stand with someone who is hurting, who is suffering in poverty. Well, it's become abundantly clear that, uh, that we do stand for something. We, we stand for vulnerable children. We love kids. We have 75 foster and adopt families. I, I, that's to, to be celebrated. I, I wish I could share the, the, the Playland stats, but Pastor Craig said I'm not allowed to steal his thunder. I was gonna share him anyway because he's not here, <laughs> but he watches everything. So you're gonna have to wait until next week to see what God is doing through the playland. It's gonna blow your mind. We have about 50 to 60 Kids Hope mentors. Many of the kids that are being mentored in Kids Hope come from vulnerable situations. Those who exist for vulnerable children are existing for the other. They see what they have, the, the time and, and the skills and the talents, what they have is not for themselves, it's for the other, so that no one would be needy, so that no one would be in need. Is that real? Was there a time in history where the church was being the church in such a phenomenal way that no one was in need? The answer is yes. And I want to paint this picture in Acts 4, 32 to 35. Acts 4, 32 to 35. I think I have that for you. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I lost my place. Checking my slides. And God's grace, this is the best part, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. That's unbelievable. There were no needy persons among them because crazy peeps were selling land and houses to provide for those in need, and the book of Acts ends in chapter 28. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Look at the extreme, and I mean extreme, language that the early church was using. Things like all. One, heart and mind. No one, everything. No needy person. All boldness, without hindrance. Now, you can't get any more extreme than that. And that's what defined, that's what defined the early church. I forgot to show you the other slide, sorry. I'm learning this clicker, it's kind of fun. So as we write Acts 29, because that's what we're writing right now. Acts ended in 28, chapter 28. And as we write Acts 29, can we say the same thing? That God's grace is so powerfully at work in all of us here at Central that there were no needy persons. 
Well, one thing I love about this community, uh, West Michigan really, is our passion for children, our family values. I mean, it's strong, really strong. But the reality is, ladies and gentlemen, is that every day, and I mean every day, thousands of our children are living in poverty, in our backyard, living in poverty. And so I wanna kind of paint a picture um, of this reality, and then it, it's gonna be a little bit um, challenging when we realize what's real. But then I wanna offer kind of how God is moving us to respond so that we can make an impact. Um, now, Ottawa County, that's where we live, Ottawa County. I think we're in Ottawa County right now. It is number one, number one in all of the state of how well we care for children. Our schools, our, our healthcare system, uh, other, other social services, we are number one. That's good news. Between us and Allegan County, I don't know how many counties are in Michigan, there's a lot, but we're in the top 20. That's awesome for how well we care for children. It's a good thing. And I don't wanna burst anybody's bubble because I feel like I do that all the time. This is how many children in Ottawa and Allegan County live in poverty. 11,000, I mean that's a big number, that's a lot of kids. Majority of them are on reduced or free lunch during school time, so what do they do when school is out? So many of these kids are hungry. 1,800 third graders are not proficient in English. 2,600 not proficient in math. This is eighth graders not proficient in math. 7,380 homes are considered investigative homes where there has been suspected neglect or child abuse, domestic violence. 1,300 confirmed cases of neglect, child abuse, or domestic violence. Behind these kids, their families, you know? Some sort of a family. It makes up about 5,000 families. That's a lot of families. 2.2, uh, 2.5 2 kids per family. 5,000 families. 63% of these families are single parent families. Single parent families. We lack 15,000 units of affordable housing and workforce housing. You're like, you changed that number. Last time you said 8,000. Yep. The recent stat shows that it has almost doubled in the last few years and will continue to double every five years if we don't do something about it. When safety is not in place, when there is not a dwelling to live in, children suffer, families suffer. And for those of you who might be a little more right-brained and you know, I'm trying to tug at your heartstrings and, and it's not working, you probably left your soul at home then, but other than that, for right-brained people, I mean, this is a long-term socioeconomic crisis, really. And we've got large corporations that for the sake of, of cost and efficiency would love to bring their vendors closer to Holland, but they can't. You know why? There's nowhere for their workers to live. And this is a long-term socioeconomic crisis that we are facing. And we have high poverty neighborhoods in Ottawa and Allegan County. Ottawa has 97 high-poverty neighborhoods. Allegan has 599 high-poverty neighborhoods. Two of those neighborhoods 
In Holland, you're probably thinking, oh, they, might, they must be on the outskirts or something like that. Harbor Village and Meadow Lanes are two high poverty neighborhoods. That's about a three wood that way. Right across the street. The people that this affects are Alice families. Asset limited, income constrained, employed. I've said it before, those who are working harder and harder but can't keep up, they are one crisis away from disaster. So this affects Alice families, it affects immigrants, it affects refugees, and it affects the children. We have a, a couple foster and adopt families that are going to be sharing um, what it's been like, some of the issues that uh, they're dealing with, and also um, Stephanie Grant's gonna share how poverty affects a developing mind. What keeps us from standing with these families? What keeps us from standing with the vulnerable children? I think the answer is lies. You know, I, when I talk about this with a lot of people, sometimes they just kind of make excuses, you know? Um, I really don't have anything to offer. That's a lie. Or, they're so different from me, we wouldn't have anything in common. That's a lie. Or, the socioeconomic divide is a little too great. It's too big of a barrier. That's a lie. Or maybe some people are like, you know what, 11,000 kids, Micah, really? You're really, we're really gonna make a difference. Poverty is too big, it's too large. However, I mean, Jesus said it himself. What did Jesus say? The poor will always be among you. Well, I would like to look at that scripture because I don't think some of us are using it right. And so let's look at that passage. It's in Mark 4, three through seven. Mark 4, three through seven. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. There it is. There it is, Mike, I told you. (laughs) Right in scripture, Jesus said it. The poor will always be among you. The problem is, is that this was not a prediction. Now it's true that those reclining at the table, they didn't see poverty eradicated in their lifetime. So it's a true statement, but it wasn't a prediction for the end of time. Because what Jesus was doing is he was pointing that group reclining at the table. As he was being prepared for his burial, he points them to the law. In Deuteronomy, chapter 15, it says this. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. That's the scripture that, got, that Jesus was referencing in Deuteronomy 15. But I need to go a little further because it's important to gain the full counsel of the scriptures on this. Just a few verses before, this is what most people don't know, just the, just. Just back up, just a little bit. It says, there need be no poor among you. I'm lost on my slides, give me a second. There it is, I was right. There need be no poor among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only you will fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. 
What's that first line say? However, there need be no poor people among you. The, the land that I gave you, the inheritance that I gave you, there's enough. There always will be enough. That's the prediction. There will be enough for there to, possibly, for there to be no needy persons among you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. So, reading this scripture, why are there poor people among us? According to the text, not all the other things that I've provided to try to explain poverty, according to the text, we must be hard-hearted and tight-fisted with what we've been given in this land. Therefore, there are poor and needy people among us. God is going to provide. And it's the picture here is what we see in the early church. The early church were so generous and so sacrificial that there were no needy people among them. I want that. Do you want that? Do you want that? That's like the kingdom of heaven on earth, right there. Some of you others may say, well, I hear you, but isn't there more important, like really hot button topics that we should be grappling with in our culture and in our community? A lot of these people usually use that text, the poor will always be among you, as fatalistic. We can't do anything about it. Let's focus on the important stuff that we can change, like life or choice, like homosexuality and gender, like violence and crime, like national security. Now I'm really pushing some buttons, aren't I? Now those are absolutely important. And I want to talk about two cities that had nearly all of those issues and more. I mean, the list went on and on. These are the poster children for sin cities in the Bible. What are they? Two cities. Sodom and Gomorrah. You're like, really? You're going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah this morning? Yes. Sodom and Gomorrah. I want to ask you the question. God destroyed them why? Why did he destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Now don't say it out loud because your neighbor might have a different answer and then you guys could get in a fight. I don't want any fights this morning. <laughs> Why did God judge Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, Isaiah tells us. In the first chapter, he says this, See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She was once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. But now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. So you see, sandwiched, uh, uh, bookending those, those two passages, uh, a city, Sodom and Gomorrah, that was once so full of justice and righteousness, but now doesn't defend the cause of the widow. They are neglecting justice for the orphan. And so before revealing the implications of this, I want to uh, share a commentary. This is J.D. Watts. Having noted the sad state of the city and having invited its people and leaders to discuss a change, apparently without response, the Lord determines to take unilateral action. He will act directly against his enemies in the city and outside. He will purge the city of its evils. He will restore leaders who will administer justice and rule with wisdom. Only then can the city's former character be restored. 
Righteousness, faithfulness, and justice are the key qualities that the city of Yahweh must exemplify. All else is derivative and secondary. This passage teaches us that justice and righteousness, that the, the, the cry of the widow, the plight of the orphan, is what exemplifies Yahweh's city. And God makes a unilateral decision in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. He removes the leaders because they neglected justice. They didn't lead with wisdom. And he destroyed the city. And so my question is, is that when we we begin to neglect things that are so close to the heart of God. Things that should exemplify Yahweh's city, those things that we've been equipped with resources and a passion for, vulnerable children. If we neglect that, is it possible that God removes his favor from a city and lets a people, a church, a nation, he gives them over to other things. Is it possible? Now, he wouldn't remove his favor if we fail to do things that we're not able to do, but if we are equipped, if we have the resources, if we have the passion, then we should do it in order for God's will to happen in the city. I love these characteristics of Yahweh's city, justice, righteousness, I, I mentioned some of those other things that are so important to, to people, and I'm not saying they're not important, but I wonder if they're ancillary. I wonder if they're symptomatic of a systemic problem, that we've neglected justice in the city. Now, have you ever done something? Uh, it may have, may have been noble, it may have been good, um, but God was telling you to do something different and you didn't do that, but you did your own thing? And it, uh, am I the only one? Okay, I hope I'm not the only one. I, these are good Christians, I'm a bad Christian. Anyway, how did you feel, how did you feel? Did you feel good? Did you feel blessed? Like the Holy Spirit was just No, you're probably like, I'm miserable right now. I'm absolutely confused. What is happening? I can relate. I did something that, uh, let me put it this way, I knew exactly what I was supposed to do and I didn't do it. You know what I did? I planted a church. That's right. Very noble, very passionate about it, very passionate about leading worship. But I knew, I knew God was calling me to justice. And I usually tell people I took the easy route and planted a church. And you know what happened? God removed me from that church. Very painful. Removed me from that church. And he put my feet on the path towards justice where I was supposed to be in the first place. And you know what's happened over the last nearly a decade? No credit to my own, but tens and thousands of thousands of individuals in Southern Africa who live with the reality of poverty have been educated, have been healed, have been empowered, have been provided shelter. They're living a new future to the glory of God. Amen. And so no matter how noble of a thing we do, if it's not what God is calling us to, he's probably calling us to do the really hard thing. That's, that's what he puts his favor on. Now, there are some families, uh, actually, I, I, so when I was running all this past Pastor Craig, he goes, uh, just tell him that you're exercising what Pastor Craig calls the ministry of provocation. I didn't know that was a ministry. Apparently, I, I, I'm good at it. My point is that caring for the orphan, the widow, the impoverished is connected to the well-being of a person, church, nation. 
And if he's given us the passion, the resources, then we need to respond to the 11,000 children that are impoverished in our backyard. I'd love to introduce you to um, some people, some friends who are responding in such a courageous and powerful way. Uh, Dr. Stephanie Grant uh, has a PhD in psychological development, development psychology. I got it. She's also a foster mom. I think that's the most courageous thing about her. So she's going to share and then she's going to interview a couple people. Let's welcome her. Good morning. Um, I'm glad to be with you this morning. This is something that I... I live, I breathe this. I do this professionally, but as Micah said, we're also foster and adoptive parents. Um, as I'm talking, I'd like to invite my other friends up here that are gonna come help me. Um, I was asked to start by giving you a little snapshot of why the brain of someone who has experienced poverty might look different. Um, it's a challenge for me because I normally have at least three hours, if not like six, to do this. So this is like an abbreviated TED Talk. Um, so to back up and start at the beginning, one of the fabulous things about the brain is that it's born what we call plastic. So most of our brain development happens after birth and then until three years of age. 700 synapses a second are developing during infancy. And our brain is driven by the experiences that we go through. But the brain doesn't filter out good experiences and bad experiences. Everything we go through in that first couple years of life impacts how our brain develops. So when we have this tiny baby, and there's this little baby sitting over me, or by me over here, that I almost like snatched and brought on stage, and I decided that was a boundary that I shouldn't cross. But super cute. When we have this baby, like I was watching this young mom do, and another baby here, when we coo at the baby, and the baby cries, and we're like, oh, sweetheart, and we change the diapers, and we feed it, and even when things get stressful, and we're super tired, maybe we call in some supports that we have, that baby's brain is driven by those experiences of nurture and safety, and then the parts of the brain that can develop based off of that continue to grow, and we get things like empathy, and we get the ability to do impulse control, and think to the future, and sit down in a third grade classroom and learn about math. But when we have a baby born into a very stressful environment, and here's the key, without adults that are caregiving to buffer the effects of that stress, then what we can get is a very different brain. So we know, for instance, that when babies go through impoverished environments, that's often highly stressful and can be traumatic. Whether we have lack of resources, food instability, um, poor caregiving because mom and dad work different shifts and we have to rely on whatever care we can get, and then maybe we even add abuse or neglect or exposure to domestic violence or drugs into the home. And the brain of that baby develops very differently. The parts that receive the experience and the growth then are the parts related to survival and stress. So that baby gets into school and empathy is really not something it's ever been able to neurolo neurologically develop. It's not that it's trying, this child is not trying to be mean. It's not even really a choice. The development hasn't been there. When we try to teach them algebra, the part of the brain that can learn that is not strong enough and connected enough to do that type of work, especially if stress takes hold and overpowers that system. So these are very different brains that we have. And then those kids become adults. And we look at these adults and sometimes we get kind of judgy about why they're making the choices they are and why they're choosing to do this and spend their money on that when we would have made a different choice, perhaps. But what we need to realize is that for the brain to develop that way, it's really better prepared for a war zone or a famine than it is for our community, where we have services and schooling and safety. And so then we have these adults, and we can't expect these adults or these children, mind you, to just change without support and treatment. And sometimes those kiddos 
might enter into foster care, and we're gonna interview foster parents. We, my husband and I are foster adopt parents as well. And I want you to understand just by hearing them talk, this little snapshot of what it might look like to work with that vulnerable population. One of the things I hear, I hear a couple of things. One, I hear, oh, sweetie, that's great, but I could never do it. They'll talk about that. We've got pretty strong feelings up here about some of that. But the other thing that I hear is people talk about when they hear these stories about how the system failed. And several years ago, that really just hasn't sat well with me, and I thought through it, and I thought, you know what? These are not the system's kids. These are not the government's kids or the state's kids. These are God's kids. And as the bride of Christ, that makes them our kids. So it's not the system that has failed, it's us. And we have to be able to take responsibility for that to make a difference and to make a change. We have to step in and take ownership of this to understand that this is not somebody else's problem. This is our problem. And that this breakdown of community is in great part what has led to this problem and we need to step up and change it. Not all of you have been called to be foster and adoptive parents and we do believe it's a calling, but we are convinced that all of you can play a role in supporting these vulnerable kids whether it's providing some occasional babysitting or bringing over a meal or doing some laundry. One of the big things that we hear is families that say, is there somebody that could be maybe a surrogate grandparent or an aunt and uncle? And just come and rock a baby while I shower, um, a baby that might be weaning off of a drug. Or maybe somebody that can come and just keep clapping while little girls spin in tutus and go, good job, you're doing awesome, but mom really needs to get caught up on some other stuff. There is a role for all of you in that. So I'm gonna step over here to some friends and I'm gonna introduce you or let them introduce themselves to you and we're gonna hear a little bit about their stories. So Darcy, you've got the mic, why don't you go ahead and start. Um, I'm Darcy Keller. Uh, my husband is not here with me today because he's at home with all five of our children. Uh, we were foster parents for several years and actually just closed our license, but we have five children, three of which we fostered and then adopted. We are Keith and Jan Parrott, and we have done it for over 40 years on and off whenever the Lord called us to it. Usually the judge called us and had a difficult one that couldn't be placed somewhere. And I'll let Keith tell the rest of the story. For me, it began a couple years ago. We were 65, I was sitting right down there, and the sermon message was calling or comfort. And I was looking for comfort, retiring, and the Lord has called us into foster care. And so we began our journey a couple years ago with, with the licensing process and becoming uh, again. And so that's where we are. We're currently fostering. Uh, we love teens, and that's our ministry right now. And we have the difficult ones again that can't be placed anywhere. We, we, we got them out of residential treatment two and a half years, and... Um, and we need respite help. So we are pushing for the respite help. And whether it's four hours or four days, you can do it. All you need is a background check and um, no licensing for your home. And the boys would love to go fishing or go out for ice cream. Oh, I'm getting a tap on the back. I'm sorry, I'm gonna start preaching. <laughs> Why don't you actually share real quickly, Jim, before passing it to Darcy, you always say something about retirement. Can you share what you yes. say about that? Yes, yes. I have read the Bible through five times in my lifetime because I enjoy reading the Bible. And I told, I told Keith um, when he was going through all of his brochures and looking to traveling when we retired, and I said, Keith, there's nothing in the Bible about retirement. There's nothing in there. Um, and, and it says that his kingdom really is here on earth, and we are supposed to be working for his kingdom. So I think we're not to retire. So, And when we had the sermon with Craig two years ago in Christmas, or in December, and the second point was comfort or calling, we looked at each other and we said, uh-oh, we're calling. We're being called. Uh, Darcy, could you share maybe something you've learned through this process? 
I think one of the biggest things I've learned is that these parents who have had their children removed are not the enemy. Um, they are doing the best they can with what they know, what they've been taught, um, the circumstances that they're living in. This is usually a multi-generational thing. Um, so this is what they were raised in, um, and they don't have the support systems. It's not as easy for them to get their way out of a setback. And that, that causes a lot of stress, um, which can lead to some pretty poor choices. Jan, could you share maybe something you've gained, you and your husband have gained through this? We have gained lots of grandkids. Um, our foster kids have grown up, and they call us Nana and Papa, and they come back at Christmas time. We have 20, so we have seven biological, and we have 20 that come back, and uh, that is a blessing. And yeah, thank you. <laughs> so. And before we kind of ask Darcy to end it, um, you already mentioned respite. That's something that you and I have talked about. And, and respite care is when you say, well, I'm not going to keep a child long term, but I would be willing again to do four days or an overnight or, you know, a week even while the family had to attend a funeral or whatever else. Uh, and so that would be something then that you'd identify as a need? It's a big need. My husband and I have always had date night on Friday nights. And now... Now we have kids with us on date night. Because nobody, there isn't, there isn't respite for the boys that we take care of. And yet, they're very easy to handle, you know, going to somebody else. But to have, a, to have us keep them 24-7, it is exhausting. And it is also fun, but it is very exhausting because they are like my shadow. They follow me everywhere around the house. And, and we, need, we need our time alone, too. And so... <laughs> Uh, Darcy, could you please maybe, if you could share one thing about foster care that you wish people would know, what would that be? Um, well, one of the big things we hear a lot, which you touched on, um, are a lot of people saying, oh, that's so great that you do that. That's awesome. You're so amazing. I could never do that. And that's just not true. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's heartbreaking. But I am not special, I am not superhuman. Um, this is something that anybody can do. If you have the ability to love and show grace, you can do this. And we all get our hearts broken. But when we get our hearts broken, it means that a kid's heart gets less broken. And so I think that's a sacrifice we've, we've just learned to accept. And I think we've all learned to find beauty in the middle of that brokenness. So, so hopefully this has given you a little bit of a snapshot, a way that you might want to get involved with our ministry. Um, online, you can go to Children of the Heart. It will soon be called Mosaic Central. But you can sign up there if you're interested or want to get more involved. We can also talk with you out in the lobby after church. But thank you so much for your time this morning. And thank you guys for coming up. Thank you. Some of you might be thinking, that sounds really hard. Really, really hard. Well, the amazing thing about it is it's the water's edge vision. Standing at the water's edge, the Israelites had to take the first step. But what happened after that? When you take that first step, the Holy Spirit steps in in such a powerful way to give you grace and endurance and joy. When the Holy Spirit empowers us to do the hard things that God is calling us to do, it actually gives us more joy than if not. And so those stories, their lives inspire me. And so my question is, how how are we to stand with vulnerable families? Because given the global giants and their antidotes, it's gonna have to be comprehensive in how we approach this. How do we stand with vulnerable families? Well, we've learned something. We've learned that 
it takes three to five, what, what we're calling allies, three to five families, maybe like a, a small group or something like that, to stand with one vulnerable family. Three to five to stand with one. And the type of support, uh, Stephanie mentioned some of it, but the type of support that allies can provide to these families is respite, uh, intercession, and mentoring, and I'll get, I'll, I'll get even uh, really specific about what some of that mentoring could look like. Affordable and stable housing alternatives, life skills mentoring and family leadership modeling, financial counseling, transportation, education advocacy, immigration and pregnancy counseling, support for blended families, marriage mentorships, family fun, don't ever underestimate the power of shared joy experiences, and dreaming. Partnering on a way to the future. No one, no one, no one ever aspires to poverty for themselves or their children. Oh, getting ahead of myself. We're not going to do this alone. Um, we, we probably don't have enough just as one church to take 11,000 to zero. But the church, capital C, does. And so much like Mosaic, which formerly Children of the Heart, we're gonna be collaborating with other churches to make an impact in high poverty neighborhoods. We're gonna bring in the experts. We're gonna bring in the experts who are, who are in the field day after day. They know exactly what we're up against and can help us approach this in, in, in the right way. Circles, uh, CirclesUSA.org is an organization, they have a brilliant approach to this. They will come into a high poverty neighborhood and, and they will assess the neighborhood. Then they will identify someone who lives in the neighborhood, not bringing someone else in, but someone who lives in the neighborhood. They will identify them as a circle leader. And once the needs of the high poverty neighborhood are assessed, then allies are invited in to that situation to provide support to vulnerable families. I love that approach, and uh, we're gonna be learning more about that. Obviously, we won't call it circles because we have short circles, and you're like, what circle am I supposed to be a part of? You know, I'm just utterly confused. But we can do something now. This, this, this is probably gonna, we're working on a four-year plan. I mean, it's big. Working on a four-year plan. But you don't have to wait. Thank you for being patient, but you don't have to wait because we've got some current things that you can be involved in. Uh, lead Lab is gonna happen in October. Um, we're gonna invite 200 leaders from our community to, to Lead Lab. We're hosting it here. And we're gonna dive deeper into the data. And you're probably like, what, there's more information? I feel like you beat it over our head all morning. Yes, there's more data to be mined. There's more to understand so that we can respond in the right way. Celebrate Recovery Weekly ministers to those who have hurts, hang-ups, habits, and a lot of vulnerable families experience uh, these things. And so that happens every week to set people free from that. Mosaic, Stephanie mentioned that. There's more information out there. Kids Hope, uh, a lot of the kids that um, our mentors have are vulnerable kids from vulnerable situations. And the Playland, it's open, it's running, it needs you. And also in our very own kids ministry on the weekends, um, we have vulnerable kids here. We have kids with special needs that need a ton of help. Uh, that's just an hour, you know, on the weekend. So that, that's a great place to start. You may be saying, I'm not ready to foster or adopt a child. I understand. F spending four hours with someone else's kids sounds like a lot. I understand. But an hour on Sunday with others, you can surely do that. Because the greatest asset that we have are not programs. The greatest asset that we have is you. Amen. 
an army of followers of Jesus who don't have to wait to be on mission until someone tells them to be on mission. You just look for needs around you. You go where they are. You go where they are. My, I'm passionate about this. And I believe so much in this church. I've been around for a while. And if God unleashes all the potential in this space, our city doesn't know what's coming. It's the kingdom of heaven becoming more visible on earth. Amen? Bow your heads, I wanna pray for us. Mother Teresa said, stay where you are. Find your own Calcutta. Find the sick, the suffering, and the lonely right there where you are, in your own homes and in your own families, in your workplace and in your schools. You can find Calcutta all over the world if you have the eyes to see. Everywhere, wherever you go, you find people who are unwanted, unloved, uncared for, just rejected by society, completely forgotten, completely left alone. And Father, you are leading us to the poor, to the broken, and you're leading them to us. We need to wrestle with that question of what do I stand for and who am I willing to stand with? I pray that you would compel us. I pray that you would provoke us this morning to get out of comfort and to follow your calling. As you speak to so many this morning on how they are to respond, I know you are, and they're probably trying to turn that voice off. You're calling us out of comfort to stand with the vulnerable. Father, I believe that 11,000 kids in poverty is unacceptable, and I believe you feel the same way. And so equip us, show us, reveal to us how we are to change that number. We love you, it's in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're gonna close with one song, and uh, as Pastor Kelly mentioned before, we have an opportunity to take a benevolence offering. Um, benevolence offerings are specifically to meet needs as they arise in our uh, central community. And so we invite you to give generously as we close with a song.